It's Left of Baseball with Adrian Burgos, Craig Calcaterra, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. I want to welcome today's guest, Chessa Bodine. Chessa is the district attorney from San Francisco, of San Francisco. He was elected in November of 2019, one of a growing number of progressive district attorneys uh, from around the country. And some of the policies that he's been working on and that he's we've seen is eliminating bail, ending racist sentencing enhancements, discouraging the police from using racist pretextual stops, and other progressive approaches to uh, law enforcement. So welcome, Chessa. Thanks, Lincoln. Great to be with you and uh, great to talk about all the issues near and dear to my heart and also uh, issues that are on the top of every San Franciscan's mind uh, as we come together to talk today. Yes. And let me say, it is very good to begin this conversation with someone making a positive statement about San Francisco baseball teams rather than some some remark by someone who was, I guess, overwhelmed by uh, envy. And we've had some of that. But uh, Chessa, why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about your baseball journey as a fan? Sure. Well, I, uh, I should just start by saying I come from a baseball family. Um, everybody in my family loves baseball. It's sort of, you know, some families are football families, some are soccer. We like sports. We like all sports. But I grew up with baseball really in my blood. And um, I could tell you a lot about that and how it played out. But let me just say that my biological father is a lifelong Red Sox fan. Oh, Jesus, we're going to have a problem. <laughs> I, I, I was born, see, I'm a National League person myself, so I was born in New York City, uh, but I was born and, and raised, I should say, raised by my adoptive parents who were both life, lifelong Chicago Cubs fans. And because we lived in New York City, you know, we had the choice of the Yankees or the Mets for our local team, and we were National League people. So we went to Mets games, we didn't go to Yankees games, but we were always Cubs fans, even in New York. Then when I was seven, we moved to Chicago. I started playing uh, t-ball and, and peewee league. My adoptive mother was the coach of my uh, peewee league team. We had, as you know, as in many big cities, we had a rivalry: the White Sox and the Cubs. But as I said, we've been Cubs fans. Uh, bad luck for us. I was on the White Sox in my peewee league. We did win the championship that year, but we kept rooting for the Cubs in, in real baseball. And um, as luck would have it, when I was nine years old, I got the very, very uh, phenomenal and and lucky opportunity to be bat boy for the Chicago Cubs for a day. Oh, wow. And this is in the era of Andre Dawson and Rick Sutcliffe and Ryan Sandberg. And uh, this is when Greg Maddox was on the Chicago Cubs. So it was a, uh, it, anyway, we should, we should talk more about that because there's a lot there, but um, I did manage to make one mistake I'll share with you right now on a nationally televised game, which is that there was a foul ball and I thought it was fair. And I ran out and grabbed the bat and took it back to the dugout. And the whole stadium was laughing because the, the I forget who the batter was, but he's looking for his bat. I've taken it back to the dugout. The guys in the dugout are all saying, no, go, he needs his bat. Take it back. What are you doing? So, you know, nine years old, uh, had a ponytail, which was not a common sight uh, on baseball fields back, <laughs> back then, and um, managed to humiliate myself uh, on national television. So. I'm sure so, it wasn't the, the last time that that would happen. <laughs> I, I want to hear more about this this bad boy story, but I want to stay on this this Cubs fan because uh, you're about the right age. Do you? And now you're, of course, in San Francisco, and we'll get to wh- where your rooting allegiances are now. But were you? Do you remember that 1989 NLCS when the Giants beat the Cubs? And how did you feel about that? Because that's the right age where that might have really hurt. Yeah, no, that's right. And I do remember it um, partly. You know, and I, I didn't get here, but I've always been kind of a tri-coastal kid. I mean, I was born in New York. We always had roots in Chicago. I ended up spending about 
you know, 12 years of my life in, you know, first grade through high school in Chicago. But we spent summers in San Francisco. My oldest brother was born in San Francisco. I have two uncles that settled here, you know, one in San Francisco, one in the East Bay. My cousins were raised here. Um, and we were always out here uh, pretty much every summer. And so the Giants were also kind of our third team, right? And once we left New York, I never looked back at the Mets. So it was really growing up, it was like the Giants, the Cubs, loyalty was with the Cubs. And my grandfather, who died at the age of 95, was pretty much a lifelong Cubs fan, and he never once saw the Cubs win the World Series. It's a pretty remarkable thing to live 95 years and never see your team win the World Series, right? And so every time they made a run at it, as you said, right, when I was at the right age, we had just moved to Chicago. We'd been there for a couple of years. My grandfather lived in Chicago. And uh, we all were super optimistic. We were going to games. I've got vivid memories of sitting in the bleachers on hot summer days that year. Uh, with, you know, my mom getting ice to keep us cool. And um, it was kind of a, you know, a spectacular letdown as the Cubs were, uh, were, were well known for, for many, many, many decades, I think is safe to say. Over a century. Yeah. Exactly. Since 1908 was the last time they won the World Series until very recently. Which like means that they're the favorites ago. for 21-24 because they do, do, they do win every 116 years. Uh, I like the glass half full approach, Lincoln. I, love, I like that. So, tell us a little bit more about that bat boy experience. Well, so I, I was in fourth grade at the time. And as I said, I had a ponytail, a pretty long ponytail came down below my shoulders. And this is an era in Major League Baseball when long hair wasn't really allowed. I mean, it was very, very strictly regulated. Appearances and grooming were really regulated by the teams. Uh, and, you know, somehow I managed to, to, to get this gig for a day uh, as Bat Boy. And a lot of the players were kind of teasing me in a way that it is, was and is totally unacceptable. Uh, but I think we have more consciousness about it today and calling me a girl in, in a sort of a demeaning way. Some of them may genuinely not have known if I was a boy or a girl because I was whatever, nine years old, 10 years old, I guess 11, anyway, somewhere in there. Um, and so I remember having this sort of weird feeling about the way that I was being teased in a really non-politically correct way because of my appearance and based on gender issues. And then I have a, a really vivid memory of sitting next to a couple of players who were making unbelievably off-color racist jokes on the, on the bench when the Cubs were in the field. And, you know, of course, all the starters were out there. So I don't remember particularly who this was. It was, it was some pitchers. It was whoever was sitting on the bench when the starters were all out playing defense. Um, and even at the age of 11, I grew up visiting my parents in prison. I grew up in a politically conscious household. Um, I grew up with a really acute sense of white privilege and, um, you know, the history of racism in this country, it, it was something that had motivated all four of my parents and ultimately led my biological parents to, to get arrested and incarcerated for decades of my life. So sitting there as an 11-year-old and listening to these players who I kind of worshipped as, as, a, as a kid playing baseball, watching them on TV, rooting for their team, and not really knowing how to respond, feeling the social pressure of, you know, the unbelievable privilege of the moment to be in the Cubs dugout, sitting next to these players who I watched on TV, getting a chance to shoot the breeze as it were with them. And then realizing that shooting the breeze with some of them was something that was really at odds with my identity and my values. Um, and I'll, I'll make one last point about it, which is seeing the segregation on the, 
the the dugout bench, the self-segregation. And part of this is language, right? I mean, there were a significant number of Spanish speakers on the team, even back then, and they were at one end of the bench, and the English speakers were at another end of the bench. And, you know, when one of them would get a hit or make a big play, they'd, you know, give each other high fives, but they weren't interacting. They were separate. They had a separate social clique. Um, and that was something that just, you know, again, really stood out in a way that was sort of uncomfortable because we're supposed to be all on the same team. The whole city's supposed to be behind them. And even there on the bench, there's this divide that you could you could visibly see it. As anyone who's listened before, this episode knows race and baseball and ethnicity and baseball and identity in baseball is a huge topic that we talk about a lot. And the ways in which um, the teams themselves, the um, franchises and the players uh, sort of mirror in many ways often what's happening with respect to race and ethnicity in this country and how much has it really changed over the years or not the um, MLB uh, and some players last year in particular uh, acting to protest what was happening with George Floyd and Jacob Blake. Um, and we've talked a lot about how much both in the clubhouse and even more in the stands and in the front offices, things have really changed in terms of, of um, racial equity of any kind. Yeah. I mean, I think the last I heard the major league baseball was what 8% black African-American. Uh, obviously there's, there's, you know, a significant number of other Hispanic, Latin, you know, Latinx black players, but um, in, in some ways it stands out compared to a lot of the other big national sports in that way, right? You look at baseball or football, uh, for example, and, and they're really dominated by African-American players and baseball, uh, excuse me, basketball or football, baseball is sort of an outlier in that regard. And I think the, the issues around race and immigration, um, not to mention the kind of bigger picture issues just around class and the divide between management and, and labor are as real and as concrete and tangible in Major League Baseball as anywhere you'll see, uh, especially if you think about something that often we don't think about, which is the minors and, and the ways in which the, the, the camps in the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico and Cuba that feed into minor league baseball, the way that minor league baseball players are mostly working two and three jobs, living in poverty and accumulating debt to pursue a dream um, that we know is, is really evasive. Um, and that's, I think, something that is kind of out of sight, out of mind for most baseball fans. Um, and it plays out in so many of the same ways that race and class play out in other areas of life where I do most of my work, right? Uh, criminal justice, healthcare, education, public housing. We see really similar dynamics, but because the press attention and the you know ESPN highlight videos are focused on those outliers, those those few who are so unbelievably successful that they get the million dollar contracts and they become household names, it's really easy to forget that the vast majority of so-called professional baseball players are not earning a living wage. And they're doing that for the benefit of these billion dollar corporations. Yeah, that's another thing I was going to bring up with you. You raised it already is also the reflections in, you know, the capitalist system that we live in of the exploitation of labor <laughs> and um, specifically the minor leagues. And we have talked a lot about unionization um, both in the minor leagues. There also had, was actually a union um, action just recently with the concession workers at Oracle Stadium, which was really interesting 
But there are articles now that are just starting to emerge about the treatment of minor league players and the unbelievable conditions that they live in um, and and the efforts to unionize, which have been challenging um, for, I guess, a number of reasons. And, and the deeply racial politics of that can't be ignored because these minor league rosters, I and mean, you talk about these players from, for example, the Dominican Republic, but many of those players from places like the Dominican Republic are non are non prospects. They're they may be pursuing a dream, but you know the Giants or the Cardinals, the Yankees, whatever. They know they're not pursuing a dream, but you got to have a backup catcher, right? You got to have someone to play third base. So they're they're not going to make it, and it's just not going to. There's no way it ends well for them. That's right, and and I think there's a another layer to this, and. You know, I think we, we can and we should talk more about race and class and how they play out in ways that are so parallel to other areas of, of life. But in baseball, and maybe this is true to some extent elsewhere, but there is also a real, and I think your point, Lincoln, kind of touches on this, but there's a real um, kind of element of nepotism and insider baseball, so to speak. Um, as you said, there are, there are prospects that the teams are grooming for success and for you know, a chance at the majors. And there's other people who in their head may be fighting for that, but it's not real, no matter how good they are. Right. And so I, I, you know, just to give one example, I have a friend who I grew up playing baseball with in my local uh, Hyde Park Kenwood baseball league. And he was always the best player around. He was always the star of every team. And he would always be the one to go to the, you know, interleague all-star play. And sure enough, he made it into the minors. A, a man named Karan Walker, he now runs the big baseball academy in Chicago. Um, and when he was a minor league baseball player, you know, it's not just that he was the best baseball player I personally knew. He was legitimately better than the folks who were catching ahead of him in the roster. But he wasn't the one who'd been groomed and recruited. And he was the one who fought his way in. And as a result, he never got a chance. He never got a real opportunity to get the number of innings, catch the number of pitches, or get promoted out of, you know, single A to double A to triple A into the majors. And um, hearing the stories that he told and, and others who I've gotten to know over the years who've been in minor league baseball, or even in the collegiate context, where you might be the best player on the field, but because the coach didn't recruit you, you're not going to get a chance to really make it. Or because in the case of, I don't know, hypothetically, my son, you're the left wing Jew from New York. Right in a culture that skews conservative, Christian, and, and white. I appreciate the, the conversation. What we're talking about, um, it's a point I've tried to deliver in the classroom and through the scholarship I, I've written about seeing the parallels between Latinos in the economy overall, the entry point, the pay, and and as you're pointing out, Chessa, also at times the purpose of Latino labor to provide the labor on the farms, to provide the entry point labor in minor league baseball, to prepare others, to feed others, you know. And so it's a really, that point really resonates with me thinking about, you know, how that then overlays with questions we have about immigration, about citizenship, about the undocumented, as if the vast majority of the undocumented are not fulfilling a vital service to this economy and society. And Adrian, you've talked a lot about the use of the, the Dominican academies and, and the, the players coming out of the Dominican and the problems with that as well. You know, before um, I became a criminal lawyer, before I became a district attorney, um, I was in law school, right? Most lawyers go through law school. Not all, turns out. It's a little known fact. There are ways to become a lawyer without going to law school. But most of us go to law school. And when I was in law school, I was in a clinic. 
a uh, basically a, a, a practicum where it was called the Worker and Immigrant Rights Advocacy Clinic. And we represented lots of different groups, individuals and groups and organizations as part of our kind of practical training. And one of the groups that we had a, a short relationship with was the Major League Baseball Players Association. And the issues that they were concerned about were not just your kind of traditional bread and butter labor issues, those for sure, but also a major, major issue for them, no pun intended with Major League Baseball, a major issue for them was immigration because so many of their members were from the Dominican Republic or from Cuba where there's really complicated immigration issues or from Japan, Korea, other countries, especially Latin America, but increasingly Asia and other and around the world. And it, it's easy enough if you're that superstar um, you know, closer from Cuba to sort out your visa, right? The, the, the government facilitates that. But what about your wife and your mother? And what about when you get that injury? What happens then when you're injured? And it's not clear if you're going to return and be able to be a superstar again. Um, and so the Players Association was appropriately concerned about the well-being um, and the stability of the lives of these players who, when, when they're the stars, red carpets rolled out, visa issues taken care of, but what about the families and what about when they're not a star anymore? Um, and so we, we had a brief opportunity to engage and try to offer some, some advice and some strategic thinking uh, around those issues. You know, and, and the, the fantastic Cuban pitcher, El Duque, Orlando Hernandez, I'm Toba, you may recall him. I um, do indeed. And he was a star of the 98 when the Yankees won the World Series. And he had just come from Cuba midway through that year. He started with the Yankees. And I read this in biography. His, his family was able to come over to watch the World Series because somebody from the Catholic Church, the Cardinal or someone in that, in that office, negotiated that. That was, but of course he was El Duque, right? He could, he could do that. The, the contrast between your, your friend who was, a, you know, trying to make in the majors, you know, the, the top prospect in the Yankee system is a guy named Anthony Volpe. I happen to know Anthony because when my son was the first kind of team, series team he played for, I got to the first practice and Anthony Volpe was hitting every pitch, you know, into the street from the playground. And I thought, my goodness, my son will never compete with this guy. And of course he never could, but and he's a good guy, and his parents are really nice folks, but they, when it was clear how much talent he had, they moved to New Jersey so he could be at that baseball academy. And he's a hardworking guy. I'm not taking anything away from him. And Lord knows the Yankees could use him, you know, if he, if he develops the way he is. But that is what it took, and that is where you see how important privilege is. I would, you know, Dave Parker's memoirs that came out like a year ago, a book called Cobra, Cobra with Dave Jordan, really fascinating book. And he talks about exactly what you were saying. You have to have an advocate. He doesn't use the word rabbi, which is the word we would use here. But you have to have someone in the system, in the front office, who's going to be your rabbi and say, I want that guy. And if you don't, if you didn't come in through that front door, you're never going to make it. Well, how many businesses are the same way with that as well? That's right. You know, it's no different. And I mean, think about the front office too, where it's extremely (laughs) stark. I mean, it's obvious to anyone who looks at front offices of baseball organizations. Yeah, these are are pretty much exclusively white-owned billion-dollar businesses. And most of the players uh, are uh, immigrants, people of color. And I mean, again, if you think about the players, not just on the major league roster, but big picture, the farms, everybody coming in, right, the pipeline. Um, And unlike basketball, where you have lots and lots of stories of people who really make it from that kind of concrete basketball court, open air, you know, schoolyard court, baseball, you know, as you point out, Lincoln, it, it often requires the entire family to have the ability financially to make decisions around uh, grooming their their children from the age of 10 or 12 
to be a superstar. It's not just the cleats and the baseball bats and the expensive gloves. It's the travel. It's the uniforms. It's paying to be uh, part of a league. It's paying for the coaching. Um, and a lot of families don't have have the means to do that. A lot of parents can't take off work to drive their kids to and from the the different uh, baseball events. And it's um, it, it you know really is in, in some ways a much more exclusive activity than than some other sports are even sports in this country yeah i wanted to circle back because part of what we're, we're talking about here is about the value of diversity and and not just on the playing field but in the front office in leadership the san francisco giants were successful in getting in the Dominican Republic in the 1950s and 60s because they hired Alex Pompez, a former owner of a Negro League baseball team. And he was someone who was experienced as a U.S.-born Latino, as an Afro-Cuban American, with what does race mean in America? What are the ways that segregation worked? And how do I teach young Afro-Latinos, young African-Americans and other Latino players how that work and how to manage that? It's, it's surprising then, you know, how baseball doesn't learn, learn from its own history of having that kind of diversity, important positions of authority to help shape the pipeline, to help impact the pipeline. You really have to change the faces of the front offices. And that has proved to be the, even harder than, getting, than, than changing the face of the on-the-field managers, you know, the Dusty Bakers, people like that. That's really proven something where, major, where the major leagues has gotten more resistant. And you, Adrian, you pointed this out too, which is that as the criteria now is an MBA from an Ivy League school rather than 20 years in the minor leagues, it actually makes it harder for, for non-whites to break in. So, I mean, let me, let me follow up on that. I, I'll, I'll call it a comment, Adrian, but I think there was an implied question. And, and I want to give two kind of specific examples. I'm curious to hear how all of you, you know, think these, you know, whether they're, ex, you know, exemplary of change or whether they're kind of outliers and, and just tokens. But I feel like in the last couple of years, maybe last year, there have been two, um, maybe more, but sort of two decision points where Major League Baseball has done things that suggest or are intended to suggest a kind of um, a kind of shift and a kind of recognition around some of the history of racial injustice. One of those is the, the decision to move the All-Star game, I think it was last year, away from uh, Atlanta, Georgia, because of the, the state government's efforts to suppress the vote, primarily uh, black and poor vote t- voter turnout, uh, and then the second one is the the launching of the Players Alliance in large largely in response to the Black Lives Matter movement and the murder of George Floyd last summer. And some would argue that Major League Baseball was kind of behind the curve, and that other you know other national sport leagues were way out ahead, uh, NBA, NFL, um, and that this was sort of a, a small after the fact attempt to recognize the, the gravity of this national movement. Others would say, no, this is a significant investment. I think it was $150 million that MLB put towards the Players Alliance. Um, and, you know, making the decision to move your all-star game is a major decision. It's, a, it's sort of a political decision. I'm curious, what, I mean, do you all think that those were Major League Baseball capitulating because it had no choice? Or do you think that it's more symbolic of the fact that the league is really changing and catching up with the with the times and the cultural norms. I think we've talked a lot about really feeling like 
Yeah, last year they had Black Lives Matter on on the mounds, and and this year they have DraftKings. You know, and and really a lot of it just being you know, what they kind of felt like they had to do in the moment. And, and one of the other things that I've been trying to figure out, honestly, not with much success, and I don't know if there's anyone on the Giants, is what the players have done. I don't, I don't, I'm sure the Players Alliance is still active, very active, but you don't hear much from individual players at this point in baseball. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, the, the guests that we have had <laughs> mostly think that, you know, baseball has been mostly full of shit. But, you know, I kind of, not to put too fine a point down or anything. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not. Maybe you lawyers can stop using legalese here, Toma. <laughs> I mean, tell us. Don't hold back. Tell us what they really think, Toma. You know, I don't. I don't know. I mean, the, the short answer, Toma, is I don't know, and I think it's probably premature to say. I mean, I, I'm a big believer in, um, you know, the concept that these sorts of things, the Players Alliance, for example can be everything or they can be nothing. And, and I don't think at the time of their birth or their launch, it, it's a foregone conclusion, which it will be. I think the, the question, you know, I think Lincoln pointed out, what are the players doing? I think that is in many ways going to determine whether the Players Alliance is meaningful or whether it's just a uh, really well-funded kind of PR effort um, that was stuck in a, in a moment in time when people were paying attention to these issues. And I think in the NBA, it's a lot easier uh, for the league because the players are, I think, much more united. They're, 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 it's a more homogenous league in the sense of far greater percentage are African-American, you know, U.S. born um, than in baseball or even the NFL. Um, but I think really all of us as commentators, you know, the, 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 the Dave Zirans of the world and the, and the players on the field and the extent to which they continue to push on these issues will determine um, the future of not just the Players Alliance, but also of the extent to which Major League Baseball continues to uh, pay attention to these issues or to which it kind of reverts to the DraftKings and the, you know, corp- corporate slogan. But the issue is also the fan base. And and, and the players. Well, yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, it, you know, it's sort of like where does one begin and the other end? You know, they... We have talked a lot about the fan base of baseball being much whiter and much more conservative than other sports as well. And whether, you know, I, I, I keep thinking about baseball claims it wants to grow the game, but then everything it sort of does is really to, seems to be more about maintaining the fan base that they have. Our colleague, Craig Cocterra, who's not on the call right now, because he had some emergency come up, but he often, and he studies this stuff a lot, he points out that the strategy of MLB is not to expand the fan base, but to extract more money from the fans that it has already. And that's why you see this emphasis on the betting. The other thing that, that I would point out is, is that the, the whiteness of the players is a real issue here that is different from the NFL and certainly from the NBA. So that where do, when, do, when do current and former major league players kind of pop in the media for things other than that aren't baseball related. It's usually for being anti-vaxxers or making some, you know, Kurt Schilling or Aubrey Huff or one of these folks who are kind of making these supporting Donald Trump. So, and if that's happening, that that is part of the clubhouse, right? I, I remember having, I said this before, but you remember Kevin Mitchell, the old, uh, one of the MVP, for the, he was on that team that beat that Cubs in the 89 playoffs. Kevin Mitchell's an African-American dude from San Diego. And, uh, and I, we were talking about the Giants, just for a book I was writing. And I said to him, you know, and I've said this on the show before, so pardon me, but I said, you know, you're an African-American dude from San Diego. Here you are on the team. 
and and a lot of the white players come from these very conservative backgrounds. How what what was that like? What was that experience like? And Kevin Mitchell looks at me for a long time and says, you know, maybe thirty seconds, doesn't say anything. And we were as a friendly conversation. And he says, I think you need to ask the, the next question. And the reason was he didn't want to say anything that would create problems for him down the road. But that is his silence said a lot. And that's what a lot of these players are up against. So for every player, you know, who wants to do so, for every Mookie Betts, there's a Blake training. The not superstars and the, the Latinx players and so on who really need to worry about their next contract um, more than, than others are particularly afraid of saying anything that would get them in a bad way with their teammates or the, the, the owners who, you know, really this all the, <laughs> it really starts with the ownership being almost entirely white billionaires. And really just, as we've talked about almost all of them, if not all of them really just doing this about the, the bottom line, as Lincoln was saying, and just really, it's about, it's a profit making business to them. Yeah. And Tom, not to mention, you know, the, the fact that if you are a, I mean, let me go back in time to another you know, great rivalry, the, um, you know, the, the, the Cubs Cardinals, right. And, and when we had, um, you know, Sammy Sosa as, you know, one of the best home run hitters in that moment. And then obviously there was the, you know, in, in hindsight, we remember it differently, but in that moment, Sammy Sosa had not just darker skin, but he also had immigration. He also had language barriers that your Mark McGuire's didn't have. Right. And so, um, I think when we talk about press, when we talk about ownership and sort of what the face of the, you know, of, of the, of the league is when it comes to kind of what drives people to buy jerseys or to show up to games or to watch TV, even when you've got someone who was widely popular, like a Sammy Sosa in his moment, in his day, um, his ability to communicate with a fan base, at least in this country, with a fan base that has resources to show up to games and to, and to pay for, you know, pay-per-view uh, specials and so on is really limited in ways that uh, your, your, your kind of white American-born player is not. And so you're compounding that privilege and that access. And in some ways, if you're looking at this in really crude capitalist terms about profit, right, who, who is it that can attract a bigger, more lucrative fan base, right? I mean, you, you, Sammy Sosa was amazing to get people in the Dominican Republic engaged. But how much money was that making for the Cubs ownership at the time, Adrian? Yeah, no, both your response and, and what Tova was mentioning about the pressures that, that players of color, Latino, Afri- African-American players, Black Latino players have about how they get along with their, their teammates. And because they, they understand it's a particular path post-playing career or at, toward the end of their careers that they probably won't have access to that David Ross does. David Ross goes from playing to booth to manager. Aaron Boone goes from playing to booth. I don't even want to be the manager. You have the job. And, you know, and that is not the reality. Like, tell me what major league player had that kind of trajectory to be Latino player that went from player to booth to manager of a team that quickly, you know, that, and so, yeah, they have to really look out. How do I talk to my white American teammate? He might be my manager next year. (laughs) He might be in the booth talking about, I don't hustle. I don't do this. I don't, you know, whereas, you know, you can have the opposite spectrum where they're in the clubhouse. And I I appreciate what you were talking about earlier about you absorbing the, 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 
the bench, uh, uh, you know, the, the atmosphere and hearing it because, you know, the guys, the, the Latino players, like what I have noticed is that certain teams, they develop a diverse kind of environment, atmosphere to their clubhouse that allows players, white players to enjoy the culture of the Latino players. And they get in on it versus some other teams, the Yankees, that keep this very staid, white, corporatist culture. And players are constantly trying to bust out of it, but you know they get reined back in. And, and it's just, to me, such an interesting dynamic about diversity and baseball's resistance to making that diversity transformative versus managing. And here's the thing. We're all still fans. We all still love baseball. Well, it's a, it's the power of sport, right? It, I don't think it's unique to baseball. I mean, I'm, you know, living through a historic era of, of, you know, Golden State Warriors basketball. Uh, I mean, I think there's something unbelievably uh, powerful about being part of a community that is rooting for, cheering for, supporting uh, the same team. Yeah, but that's the, the thing. It's just that... I'm probably, if I go to Yankee Stadium, probably most of the people there I would not like otherwise. I mean, I don't know. A lot. It's a great unifier. But that's, fire. But that's true of you and that's, that's true of you thing. in most places, Tova. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that, considering it's coming from Lincoln. I think it's true of both of us. I wasn't. I, wasn't. <laughs> I mean, if you guys are both, uh, you're pitching softballs, this is like the home run derby here. Just keep them coming. <laughs> The point is, what is the point? The point is, is that we, we saw that I, the other example I'm always giving is if I, when I've been to Fenway, which I was not the other night, though I was too close. Um, and I see other Yankee fans there. We have this great bond and they could be terrible people. Um, and, you know, you would hope that you could use that as a unifier. And I, I, I we had a political scientist on a couple of weeks ago who focuses on this issue of working with identity to bring people into politics and participation. And I just don't know. It's just not clear to me that at this point you can, can even see it that way. And this, this point in, in time. You don't think, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm asking this question, not in a rhetorical way. I mean, I really don't know, but it, it seems to me that there is, even if just for that moment, when you are in a packed stadium and you have all of the tension of a bases loaded, tie game, bottom of the ninth, full count, right? And, you know, Brandon Belt is up to bat, right? He's your, he's your leading home run hitter, right? The tension of that moment is a more powerful unifying force than almost anything else that, that we experience on a somewhat regular basis. I agree with you. You may walk out of the stadium after the Giants win. And you may go back to your life and you may be on the opposite side of every issue from the person who was sitting next to you in the stadium. But when, when Brandon Belt swings and connects and you hear that home run pop, you're going to hug everybody around you. doesn't matter if they're Republicans or Democrats or Libertarians or Green Party. doesn't matter if, I mean, it, it unifies you, even if just for that moment in a way that is profound. It has a lot to do with these regional identities, which... Coming from the city where, where you serve as district attorney and the team that, that that I that I root for, is is not like every other team. I mean, I'm, I'm recalling a friend of mine 
who was at game one of the 2010 World Series. And this guy is kind of a, a left-wing lawyer who works on some of the same issues as you. And someone on, on the Giants hit a home run, and he turns to the fans behind him, who were Rangers fans. Remember, they were playing the Rangers. And he turns to them and he says, that's for shooting Jack Kennedy, and that's for George W. Bush, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but he was, I mean, <laughs> it, was, he, it wasn't maybe the most eloquent, but... It is. I mean, I remember in this town, when I moved here in the early 90s, if I saw somebody with a Giants hat, very frequently they were either had spent time in San Francisco and it meant something to them, or they were gay and they were trying to show. I mean, it was a complicated – the identities are not – identities can be more complicated. I mean, I, I, if you – so, you know, in regional identities, the United States are very strong, right? If you're from Texas, even though Texas isn't necessarily the biggest baseball state in that way with the Rangers, but like people from Texas are are – are as myopic and kind of proud of their home as, as New Yorkers are, right? Regional identities are strong, and that bond is real, and the team maybe reinforces it. Wait, so Chester, are you still a Chicago Cubs fan then, or are you all in with the Giants? Is that a bad is that a bad question for someone in politics? I'm sorry. It is a bad question. It's not fair. We're gonna have to you have to edit that out. No, it's look, it's one of those things where, and it actually ties in with what I was gonna say to respond to Lincoln, which is. I think there was an era when, when I was a kid and certainly before I was born when the regional identities that Lincoln talked about and when the, the connection that people had to their hometown team was much stronger than it is today. And I say that for a couple of reasons. One is <clears throat> we are all collectively much more mobile than, we, than our parents were, than our grandparents were, right? The, 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 the idea of picking up and moving across the country for a job is pretty normal now. It happens all the time. Uh, but the other reason is that the teams themselves are much more fluid. And, you know, the era of people having their entire career, you know, Babe Ruth, obviously Red Sox made a terrible mistake. They traded, you know, sold them to the, to, to the Yankees. But um, not the last terrible mistake the Red Sox made, right, Tova? But, uh, That's right. But, <laughs> but, you know, then you have these kind of franchise players who spend their entire career and the teams didn't change that much 50 years ago. Um, obviously you still have your, you know, you, you still have your franchise players, but it, it's a much more for players are traded mid season, every season. And I think that as much as we love the giants in San Francisco, you also, you also love the players and the individual players might come and go. And so I, I do think there's space now for me, at least to love the Cubs and root for the Cubs, but also to be a diehard giants fan. Um, and, and I think part of that is because the players, you know, my favorite player on the Giants might be on the Cubs by the end of next season. Or the Dodgers. No. no, no. <laughs> but but I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And there is, and I, I believe very firmly that there's room for, to root for more than one team. I mean, you know, it, rooting for two teams in my mind is much better than rooting for no teams. Well, and also it gives you a backup plan. Gives, and, and, and if you root for a team from a small media market, you need that backup plan. If you're a diehard Seattle Mariners fan and you don't have a kind of Yankees, Red Sox, Giants, Cubs team to root for, you're never, it's, it's very depressing. And that wasn't true when there were 16 teams. I mean, it was true. There were three or four teams that were just terrible for decades. But with so many teams, it's, it's okay to have two teams because your father's from one place, your mother's from one place. But what about the Ray fan? The one guy? I am so struggling. We've been talking about, I'm so struggling with who, if anyone, to root for in this AL series, the, the whole AL side of the, the ledger. Uh, we, and, and a friend of ours, all of ours, has been encouraging me to root for individual players rather than teams. We should root for Dusty Baker. Yes, we, you know, we love Dusty Baker. 
stuff like that, you know, and, but you know, the Astros, seriously, am I going to go there? I don't know. I'm, I'm struggling with this, quite honestly. The World Series is the NLDS right now. These are the two best teams, regardless of who's holding the trophy at the end of, in early November, these are the two best teams. The whole world knows it. So that's who you root for. You root for the Giants and you leave it at that. I am rooting for the Giants. Also, the, the one identity that you left out if you saw someone wearing a, a Giants hat in New York was that they were a New York Giants fan, of which there are still many in that city. I was up at the Polo Grounds just uh, last week on, on Sunday for the 70th anniversary of the uh, shot around the world. Chessa, I want to thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic discussion, and I know you're very busy, but I hope you've enjoyed this opportunity to talk a little baseball uh, uh, with us and, and some other issues as well. I've definitely enjoyed it. I know that these are uh, tough questions. They don't have easy answers, and probably we'd get closer to an answer if next time we could record this uh, while drinking a beer in Giant Stadium. Thank you for joining us for the Left of Baseball podcast with co-host Lincoln Mitchell. That's me, Tova Wang, and Adrian Burgos Jr. Our other co-host, Craig Calcaterra, couldn't join us today because he was out on assignment. I also want to give a special thanks to our guest, Chessa Bodine. And if you like what you heard today, please tell a friend about it. You can get us wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate and review us wherever you do get those podcasts.